the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Well, today is our fourth session in this post-resurrection season Rewind series, our overarching theme being the road to the resurrection of our Redeemer. And by that I mean the journey, the path along which Jesus intensified his teaching so as to instill in his disciples' minds the divine paradoxes of the kingdom of God, a brief window of time in between his transfiguration, recorded in Matthew chapter 17, and his triumphal entry, our Palm Sunday, recorded in Matthew chapter 21. We've been slicing a piece of Jesus' teaching ministry out of the last two weeks or so of his life. Remember, the clock is winding down for Jesus, so he's now focused on and zeroing in on these divine paradoxes of the kingdom of God. There are two provocative questions that I've been dangling over these sessions. First, the annual celebration is now past, but is the living now over? And second, has this once-a-year celebration now propelled us to live out the resurrected life? Well, friends, I'm going to begin today's session with an event that occurred one night on April 25, 1958. A young Korean exchange student, leader in student Christian affairs at the University of Pennsylvania, left his apartment and walked to the corner mailbox to send his parents a letter. On his way back, eleven leather-jacketed teenage boys confronted him, attacked him, and beat him with a blackjack, a lead pipe, and their fists, kicking him repeatedly. Sadly, the police later found him dead. All Philadelphia cried out for justice, for vengeance even. The district attorney secured legal authority to try these boys as adults so they'd get the death penalty. But in the midst of these outrageous and shocking acts, plus the ensuing investigation, a letter came from Korea that made everyone stop and think. 
It was signed by the murdered boy's parents, plus twenty relatives. The letter included these words, Our family has met and decided to petition that the most generous treatment possible within the laws of your government be given to those who committed this crime. In order to show evidence of our sincere hope contained in this petition, we've decided to save money and start a fund to be used for the religious, educational, vocational, and social guidance of these boys when they're released. We have dared to express our hope with a spirit received from the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. Whoa! Friends, is that spirit foreign to us? Did that response surprise or shock us? Haven't we spent these rewind sessions unveiling that spirit received from the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ, who died for our sins? This Rewind series, The Road to the Resurrection of Our Redeemer, is precisely that road. And I've been saying that it's a road or path peppered with divine paradoxes, reversals even, contrasted with the world's stereotypical thinking patterns. And friends, these divine paradoxes clamor for our attention to remind us of two key truths— First, they represent the ordinary or typical mindset of the Christ follower. And the reason why they should represent the ordinary mindset of the Christ follower is because, second, they represent the ordinary or typical mindset of the kingdom of God. Remember, God's kingdom and this world's kingdom are kingdoms in conflict, mindsets in conflict, if you will. That Korean Christian family certainly displayed the mindset of the kingdom of God, didn't they? Now, were they crushed? Did they grieve? You bet they did. But the mindset of the kingdom of God moved them and should move us to react in a non-conventional, non-typical way, one that stands out and makes people stop and think. It's no coincidence, friends, that the Korean letter included this Quote, we have dared to express our hope with a spirit received from the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. Unquote. There's the passion of the Christ. There's the cross of Christ showing up. All through this series, I've been sharing that a key function of the cross is to put to death our suke life, that purely soulish life, and distance ourselves from its old ways and habit patterns. Our overarching text has been Jesus' words in Luke nine twenty three and 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life, there it is, suke or the soul life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, same word, for my sake is the one who will save it. Friends, recall that the suke life stands for the ordinary or typical mindset of this world's kingdom, its characteristic response to life's circumstances, one dictated by humanity's lower self, the self that operates purely in the natural realm, the realm of the senses, including our feelings and emotions. And of course, the flip side of suke is the cross and the zoe life, resurrection life, our higher self, salvation life, if you will. Zoe infuses us with a whole new dimension of living. Friends, this is what Paul meant in Romans 6, 4. 
as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Here it is, Zoe life. So another paradox is that this Zoe life then turns into a life of surrender. In other words, surrendering our suke life. And this is precisely what's at the heart of these divine paradoxes we've sliced out of Jesus' life and teaching ministry. That two-week period, a period sandwiched between the transfiguration in Matthew 17 and the triumphal entry, or our Palm Sunday, in Matthew 21. Friends, there isn't much time left for Jesus to reinforce and instill in his followers' minds these divine paradoxes of the kingdom of God, where he contrasts heaven's value system with the world's value system. Well, in today's conclusion, part 4 will shed light on Matthew 20, 1-16. But before we read the parable of the workers in the vineyard, let's briefly recap the paradoxes we've singled out so far. In part one, we saw the kingdom paradox of what constitutes greatness God's way, the path of humility. In other words, how rank in the kingdom is determined. Jesus' words in Matthew 18, 3 and 4 set the stage. Truly I tell you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child... He is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't let converted throw you. Jesus wasn't talking about salvation conversion, but rather about converting our mindset. In other words, reorienting our mindset, our thinking patterns regarding the values that mark God's kingdom versus the values that mark contemporary society or the world's kingdom. And in the disciples' case, humility was a despised character trait. Respectable people in first century society loathed it. It was the scandalous virtue, for it pictured the lowest of society. Humility was for groveling slaves. So in this cultural context, Jesus set out to teach his disciples greatness God's way, greatness via kingdom values. You see, friends, in God's eyes, Greatness is actually rooted in the very trait the world detested. How amazing, then, that the disciples, plus those who wrote the New Testament, went on to instruct the up-and-coming church to cultivate humility, and that it was not an option, but now it was essential. Under the world system, people many times took the road or path of ascending to greatness, often through selfish ambition. Conversely, the kingdom's system operates by descending into greatness through cultivating humility expressed in servanthood. In part two, we saw the kingdom paradox of reciprocity God's way. When others offend us, hurt us, even sin against us, Part two's focus was the path of forgiveness, contrasting the prevailing religious culture's limits on forgiveness with God's kingdom's principle of not limiting forgiveness. We unpacked Matthew eighteen twenty-one and 22, where well-meaning Peter asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, articulating the kingdom's value system, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy times seven. 
Have you noticed, friends, that the suke life always defaults to earthly arithmetic, and that it plays on our natural proclivities and snubs heavenly arithmetic, arithmetic that springs from the zoe life, as Jesus instructed in his response to Peter. In part three, we saw the kingdom paradox of how one enters the kingdom of heaven with salvation God's way, the path of eternal life. Again, two kingdoms clash as we're drawn into the conversation between Jesus and the rich young ruler in Matthew 19:16. The rich young ruler actually supplies the key question. Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Here Jesus equated eternal life with several synonymous expressions like life, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the renewal or restoration, and being saved. You see, friends, this ruler had human achievements in mind. He thought he had a shoe in. He thought by keeping the commandments, he'd ace the entrance exam for the kingdom of heaven. But that entrance exam required something he was not ready to hear, and it ultimately revealed his true mindset. And friends, here's where the divine paradox arises, because Jesus even challenged his disciples' prevailing mindset. Remember, it was inconceivable to the Roman and Jewish mind of the day that wealth would hinder one from entering the kingdom of heaven. Wealth symbolized God's favor. But let's recall the first beatitude in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First century people would hear it this way. Blessed are those who recognize their own spiritual poverty, bankruptcy, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For the first time that society's poorer class were told they could inherit the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't exclude them like their political and religious leaders did. So Jesus introduced a kingdom with spiritual requirements. One must recognize their need of a savior. You see, friends, rich people of that day, for the most part, were blinded by wealth and thought they could buy anything, even salvation. But they failed miserably to see their real spiritual condition before God. Oh, but we don't do that in the church today, do we? Many in that first century culture thought wealth was a reward from God for being good. Jesus' own disciples must have been stymied when he hit them with these words. Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Friends, today's final divine paradox occurs just before Jesus and his disciples make their jaunt to Jerusalem, which is viewed as his triumphal entry, part four being the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew 21 through 16. So our final paradox is generosity God's way, the path of kindness. You've heard the expression, random acts of kindness. Well, how about deliberate acts of kindness? How about taking kindness to the nth degree? Someone once said, it's one thing to be taught kindness. It's another thing to be touched by it. And today's subtitle is, It's Just Not Fair. But let me first point out that the last verse in chapter 19, leading into chapter 20, is significant. It's the tail end of the rich young ruler account and serves as a bridge to chapter 20, verse 1. The first word in chapter 20, verse 1 is for, which can also be translated, for the fact is. 
alerting us to its connection to the end of chapter 19. Friends, I think you'll appreciate this connection. I'll read 1930 as a lead into chapter 20, so we see how context aids our understanding. But many who are first will be last. Many who are last will be first. For the fact is, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, friends, as the workday unfolds, we're told at about 9 a.m. the landowner found others and sent them into his vineyard, promising to pay them what is right. Note, not a specified salary. Then around noon, and again at three, still others were waiting for work, so he sent them into his vineyard. Lastly, about five, he found others still out waiting for work, so he sent them into his vineyard. And here's the crux of Jesus' story, where our paradox reveals itself. Let's join in at verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Notice, last and first. The workers who were hired about 5 p.m. came and each received a denarius, which was promised to those who began at 6 a.m. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them received a denarius. They began to grumble against the landowner, saying, These who were hired last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But the landowner answered, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give those hired less the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Well, let's pause here a moment, friends. If you tuned in late, you're listening to A Word from the Word with me, your host, Pastor Tom. I want you to know how valuable you are as listeners to A Word from the Word, which is listener-funded. Your financial partnership keeps this program on the air, which disciples many Christians without a church home, plus those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Join forces with me and A Word from the Word by emailing me for support details at a word from the word at minister.com. We'll repeat this info at the end of the program. Now, the parable we just read is set in the familiar world where day laborers are hired at sun up and paid at the end of each day. A first century reader would immediately feel at home in the world created by this parable, especially since it deals with harvesting grapes, one of the most important crops in ancient Israel. So Jesus sets up his fourth paradox by telling people what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's informing his disciples and followers that the kingdom's mindset will be vastly different from the prevailing mindset of their world. Well, we 21st century readers would greatly benefit by understanding the first century workday, typically divided into three-hour increments, starting around 6 a.m. and ending at 6 p.m. Between these hours, we find our Bible mentioning the third hour, 9 a.m., the sixth hour, noon, the ninth hour, 3 p.m., the eleventh hour, 5 p.m., John 1.39 even references the 10th hour, 4 p.m. 
It's probable that Matthew 20 verse 1's reference to the landowner going out early in the morning to hire workers meant he went searching for them in the marketplace. In the Greco-Roman world, the marketplace was known as the Agora, where people hung out in a common meeting place to accomplish a variety of tasks. Magistrates judged there, children played there, philosophers argued there, and people shopped there. No wonder we use the English word agoraphobia, fear of public places. In all main cities of that day, people needed work gathering at about 6 a.m., especially when harvesting grapes when they became ripe. They had to be picked promptly or the harvest would be lost." Keep in mind, friends, that only the first group the landowners sought to work for him were hired for an agreed-upon salary, a denarius. Each subsequent group was told only that they would be given whatever is right, a word that can mean just. We could even say fair. A denarius was worth 18 to 20 cents. It was a typical wage for day laborers. For a 12-hour day divided by 20 cents meant 1.6 cents an hour. You see, friends, families in the ancient world usually went day to day, often earning just enough money for food that day. This puts a whole new spin on the Lord's Prayer and give us this day our daily bread. If a family didn't find work, they most likely wouldn't have enough food to eat that day. This is why laborers hung around all day at the Agora, or at all different hours, hoping someone would hire them, even for a few hours or just one hour. And those 11th hour laborers who were still waiting at 5 p.m. expected to be paid just one twelfth of the typical denarius. That's between 1.6 and 1.7 cents. Well, the drama of this story, friends, elevates with Jesus' surprise ending, doesn't it? And here's where the divine paradox occurs, verses 10 through 15. It's kind of curious from our modern perspective that Jesus had the landowner paying the last hour workers first, isn't it? But the paradox would break down if he didn't do it that way. You see, Jesus' goal is to publicly display the generosity of the landowner, his kindness, by paying the last group the same amount as the first group. In so doing, the landowner was ensuring the last group's families a day's wage, for they would be equally needy for their day's food. Notice that those who worked the full day didn't see it that way. They didn't see the landowner's generosity and kindness toward the needy among them. This is why the landowner responds to the complaints of the full-day workers with, Are you envious because I am generous? Literally, this is, Is your eye evil because I am good? In Hebrew thought, the evil eye signified envy. So Jesus was saying the full-day laborers were envious of the landowner's goodness, kindness, and generosity. They just couldn't be grateful for the landowner's generosity. They were blinded by their own self-envy. You see, friends, a natural byproduct of the suke life is envy and self-centeredness. As I've mentioned before, the suke life loves operating with the kingdom of this world's arithmetic. It's always about justice, equal pay for equal work. But it's a great day when we Christ followers react according to the Zoe life and operate with God's kingdom arithmetic. That's always generous, 
good and kind. You see, kingdom arithmetic goes beyond what is simply required or expected. It's always about generosity and grace, which flow from loving kindness. Jesus' parable makes no economic sense, which was exactly his point. The spiritual parallel, friends, the divine paradox, is that we can't calculate the generosity and kindness of God like we calculate a day's wage. God's generosity and kindness are his gift to us. We can't work hard enough to earn it. Romans 2, four says, Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Friends, how many times have the Pharisees boasted that Abraham was their father? They really believed they had a religious shoe into the kingdom of heaven. But we Christ followers know better, don't we? There's no religious or monetary shoe into the kingdom of heaven. Everyone comes into the kingdom the same way, through repentance, by those laborers basically blurting out to the landowner, it's just not fair. Deduced from 2013, they were actually accusing Jesus and ultimately God of not being fair, attacking his kindness, his generosity. But God levels the playing field, doesn't he? Regardless of our social or economic status, his generosity and kindness offer us salvation by grace and not through works, so we can't boast. Every one of us is on equal footing with God, and his offer is given equally to all of us, the only stipulation being recognizing our sinfulness and our need of the Savior, his Son, Jesus Christ. Generosity God's way, friends, is recognizing God's generous and kind heart, sending his son to die on the cross for our sins and opening a way for us to return to him. So, friends, let us pursue the path of kindness, because this is generosity God's way. Who knows, just as God's kindness led us to repentance and salvation, perhaps our kindness may lead someone else to repentance and salvation. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I can see we're nearing the end of today's program. And as promised, we'll be closing with an email where you may write me and inquire about how to financially support A Word from the Word, a listener-funded program. I love coming alongside those of you without a church home or those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just scroll to A Word from the Word. Podcasts can also be accessed on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Podcasts. And thanks to my friends and partners at ChristianBody.net, a word from the word is aired on over 70 countries. Friends, please consider investing in the mission of a word from the word this year and help us become fully funded. It's listeners like you that help keep this program on the air. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, If you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at awordfromtheword at minister.com. That's awordfromtheword at minister.com.
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.